When a tornado rips through an area, is it valid to pray and ask God for protection? Is the ultimate being in the universe actually involved in such mundane things in nature as wind and rain? What about the sexual choices we make? Our culture teaches us that you can do it inside marriage, outside marriage, heterosexually, homosexually, and bisexually. There will be no consequences in your physical, emotional, or mental health. In our postmodern world, these are accepted as givens, but is it the truth? This is Truth Encounter, a program committed to challenging you to consider what the biblical Christ actually has to say to us in the 21st century. Today's encounter takes us to Revelation chapter 8 for a study our Bible study leader, Dave Wardson, has titled, When Bad Things Happen to Bad People. Dave? I know that all of you farmers know that it's important to pray for rain. But I want you to think about the way that a lot of our children have been taught in school from the time they've been small. You see, back in the 1860s, an Englishman named Charles Darwin wrote a book, and his book had a very powerful effect upon the intellectual community of the world. And in fact, he created a philosophy that's become the dominant philosophy and in all of the academy. Now, it's not the dominant philosophy among the vast majority of people, but it is the dominant philosophy among the 9% of our culture that control the universities of the world. And that philosophy is that nature is a totally closed system. And that if there is a God that's outside that system, whatever he might be or whoever he might be, he never intersects with this natural universe. And therefore, you have to explain science, you have to explain nature in a, what we call a closed system. If you go to university, that's the dominant belief in science. In fact, right now it's a tremendous debate because the walls are cracking. We live in a great day. There's a tremendous movement, kind of a great resurgence in our land and a belief in the statement that there's supernaturalism, not just naturalism. But if we were really going to be biblical, we would not just ask this great God for rain, but we might ask ourselves, why isn't he giving us rain? And the Old Testament prophet would respond, it's because you're worshiping idols. You're worshiping things. You are involved in immorality. You are involved in materialism. You're involved in cruel violence. And the Old Testament prophet would say that the reason that God is withholding his great gifts in nature is because you need to repent. Now, how many times have you ever heard that? You see, in our culture, there's a prevailing view, number one, that God really doesn't have anything to do with everyday natural life. That God really isn't involved in nature. And if you're really going to be a scientist, that you need to just look at nature as if it's a closed system. The second idea is, is that ethics and morality have nothing to do with, with blessing, have nothing to do with what God does do and doesn't do for us. Now, what I want to challenge you with this morning is that those two secular ideas are lies, that they're not true. And I want you to be looking for them. I want you to think about the way that they impact your life. Because we open up to Revelation chapter 8, we have to ask a very tough question. What happens when bad things happen to bad people? Now, we're all excited in our culture about what happens when bad things happen to good people. 
Rabbi Kushner wrote a book, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. And he wrestled with the problem of suffering. He lost one of his precious children. And it just totally devastated his life, and as it would any of us. And Rabbi Kushner wrestled with how can there be a supernatural almighty God? How can there be a good God when such terrible things happen on planet Earth? Now that is the debate. That's the issue of the book of Job's. But, you know, as we talk about what happens when bad things happen to good people, I want to talk from Revelation 8 about what about a different issue? What about when bad things happen to bad people? We have this prevailing idea in our culture is not only that the blessings of God in nature have nothing to do with ethics. We've got another step in our culture, and the truth of the matter is most of your friends that you're going to be with tomorrow... Most of your friends at the office, they have jettisoned any connection between doing bad things and having bad things happen. In other words, the dominant belief in our culture is that you can do bad things. You can really mess up God's plan. And because we don't believe that God really does anything in the natural world, we also believe that you can do bad things with immunity. For example, like if you want to live alternative lifestyles, if you want to be immoral, heterosexually, it will have no influence on your life. You'll be just as healthy, just as strong emotionally. Everything will be fine. If anyone has the adaptive to say, as you know, if you are a homosexual and you practice that lifestyle and you do it repeatedly, that there's a really strong possibility that bad things will happen, that you'll get sick, that it will hurt you powerfully emotionally, and that you'll probably die young? If anyone ever says that, that's the end. Man, they're thrown right out. They're an evil, wicked person. But what I want to share with you, if that's the truth, if that's really the way reality is, and I want to share something with you, you can think anything you want about reality, but when reality happens, it happens. What's true is true, no matter what you think about it. And if that's really the case, if sometimes bad things happen because we do bad things, if there really is consequences for breaking God's law, then to not tell people that is one of the most bad things that could ever happen. And in order for you to understand Revelation chapter 8, you've almost got to step out of the air that you breathe culturally and you have to listen to what God really says about reality because in Revelation chapter 8, God begins to blow his trumpet judgments. We're in the tribulation period, moving about halfway through. Remember, as we've studied the book of Revelation, just so I can catch all of you up on where we are chronologically, remember we began the book of Revelation with a vision of the exalted Christ. And we caught a vision of Jesus in all of his glory. And we've learned that that's what this book is about. It's it's to get us to adore Jesus, to get us to look at him, to get us to, to understand his majesty. And that gives us the courage to really live for him in the midst of hostile territory. As we moved into Revelation chapter 1, we saw the vision of the exalted Christ, and that's the things which John saw. That's the the one that he saw, we could say. Then at the end of chapter 1, John also said he would now talk to us about the way that things are. And we studied Revelation 2 and 3 together. We found out that there were seven churches in Asia that expressed to us all the different kinds of churches that they're going to be down through time. 
We found out as we studied Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum and, and, and Thyatira and all these different churches. As we studied the seven churches, we learned that they were a lot like us. That they had some good points and they had some bad points. We learned how to pray for the Christ in us to generate the good points in us and for us to be able to turn away from the things that were going to destroy us and snuff out our light. As we moved at the end of chapter 3, we had a great invitation as Jesus said, I'm coming back. I'm coming back soon. Are you ready for me to come back? And we have this great, great promise that as we go through the church age, that at any moment, our precious Savior could come and we could have the great snatch take place. Then as we moved into chapter 4, we moved into the next major part of the book, which is going to consume us all the way to the end, and that is the things that are going to, go, that are going to happen after the present time of the church. And that's called the 70th week of Daniel, according to Daniel chapter 9. It's the 70th week of Daniel where God in heaven begins to really work again at the end of history. And he goes back and picks up some pieces from the Old Testament. And he says, what about my Jewish people? And we studied about the fact that right now the vast majority of Jewish people curse Jesus. We talked about some of the reasons for that because of the, the organized Christianity and how it's brutally hurt the Jews and how satanic that is. But we also had great hope because the book of Revelation says that during the tribulation period that God in heaven will again begin to open the hearts of his Jewish people. And I believe in some ways maybe we're beginning to see the beginning of that. Because in my day, just in the last 20 years or so, there's been a whole new movements in Jewish evangelism and new response and, and, and bringing in some tremendous ways to reach them. And hearts are opening, but it's still a hard nut to crack. But in the tribulation period, we learn that God will raise up. For example, in Revelation chapter 7, we learned how God would seal 144,000 Jewish men. And these men would be intense disciples for Jesus. And they wouldn't be immoral. And they would live holy for him. And they would stand against the Antichrist forces. In the second half of, of Revelation chapter 7, we had thousands upon thousands of believers in Jesus. And we caught a glimpse of them in heaven because they've come out of the great tribulation. Some of them died physically. Some of them were attacked by Antichrist and experienced martyrdom. But we have this great vision that it was worth everything because now in heaven they're exalting before the Son of God. So that brings us to Revelation chapter 8 because it's now time to sound the seventh seal or to open up the seventh seal. And as Jesus opens up the seventh seal of the book of destiny, it leads into a, like a crescendo as in the seventh seal we have the seven trumpet judgments. And that's where we are in the book of Revelation. It's the seals and the trumpets and the bulls that keep carrying the narrative forward. And then after John presents to you some of those seven seals, for example, then he calls time out and says, now let me give you some snapshots. So what he did is he gave us the, the six seals and then he called time out. And in Revelation 7, he showed us an up close and personal picture of the 144,000. And then he also gave us a great snapshot of the ultimate glory in heaven. So you'll understand the book when you read it on your own. As we open up to Revelation 8, the narrative begins to accelerate again as we have the seven trumpet judgments. Look at it, and you'll understand what I'm talking about in Revelation chapter 8. 
When he opened the seventh seal, that is Jesus that we were introduced to in chapter 1 and also that was worshipped in Revelation chapter 5. When he, Jesus, opened up the seventh seal, there was silence in the heaven for about a half an hour. We begin with a dramatic silence. All of you that are in theater know the power of silence. As Americans, we have great difficulty with silence. Now, I've talked to you in the book about how worship sometimes will be loud and it will be exuberant and it will be victorious. And I've tried to shake some of you that always think that it needs to be quiet and gentle and soft to understand that our Heavenly Father loves to have great drama. He likes cymbals playing. He likes percussion. He likes loudness. He likes the tremendous shout of millions upon millions of people adoring him. But I also want you to know that in your life with God, there's tremendous power in silence, letting God speak. One of the things in your Christian life that some of you, you say, well, Dave, I'm kind of dry, and I, I'm, kind of, I'm kind of discouraged, and I, I, I'm not sure that God is speaking to me at all. One of the things I would say to you, have you had any times of silence with God? Have you been by yourself at all this week, maybe just taking your Bible and you have to do it early in the morning, maybe going out on your back porch or maybe out in some woods if you can find them or maybe by some pond that might be in your backyard and just be silent with God. Just be silent. Let him set the agenda. Let him bring to your mind some things that he wants to make you aware of. Very, very special thing. That's another way that the Lord will renew you it's a spiritual discipline of silence. And that's what was happening. You say, what's the basis of that? Right here in the book of Revelation, it was important for the angels to be worshiping God and for the elders, the, the, this especially the superior group of angels or this special elite group of angels. They were singing, pray to the Lord. We've even had millions of people gathered around the throne. But as we open up to chapter 8, before the seventh seal is opened, and as the seventh seal is opened, there is silence in the heaven. Now, what happens during that silence? Look what it says. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given the seven trumpets. These seven angels are, we don't know exactly who they are in, in Jewish um, first century Theology and some of their sacred writings, they give you a listing of seven of these angels. You know uh, two of them. Michael is one of these seven angels in Jewish theology. Another one that you know is Gabriel. In fact, remember when Gabriel came to Mary, he said, I'm Gabriel, and some of you can finish that. I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God. What did Gabriel mean by that? All of you can think of a monarchy, and in a monarchy, when you have a great king, you'll have a group of lieutenants that are right there in the throne room so that they're ready to answer. Some of you that have been in the military, you've seen a general, and he has his adjutant. He has his, his, his officer that's right there at his right hand, and that person stands in his presence, and he's ready to do anything that the general needs to have done. And you'll understand what the, what the angel of the presence is if you'll understand that kind of an imagery. These are angels that stand very close to the throne of God and they're there to do exactly what the Lord God in heaven wants them to do. In this case, what he wants them to do is he hands them a trumpet. This would be, in Jewish thinking, would be a long brass instrument with a big bell at the end, not with, not with valves, but a long 
single trumpet that's called the shofar, and then it would have a small opening at the other end where they would blow, and all of you have heard some Jewish celebrations where they begin with these trumpets. So I saw the seven angels of God. They're ready to do exactly what God called them to do. They were given seven trumpets. Now another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar. In the tabernacle and the temple in the, in the Old Testament, you had the altar of burnt offering where the sacrifices were offered, but you also had an altar of incense that was not in the Holy of Holies, but it was in the holy place. And this would be the place where they would keep a fire going. They would have like a brass or a golden censer that would be like, a, like the old warming pans. Some of you remember, you know, when I used to go up to, uh, to the Catskill Mountains, we would have these pans that you would put hot coals in, and then we would put them all over our bed because we didn't have electric blankets. Anybody do any of that ancient stuff? Anybody ever done that? Do you know what I'm talking about? No, you probably don't. But that was that what they used to do before electric blankets upstate New York. You would have like this big pan with a cover on it, and you could open the cover, put hot coals in there, and then go all over your sheets before you got in. It would warm it up. The crazy people I stayed with would leave the stupid thing in your bed, which not only burnt the sheets, but if you ever rolled wrong at night, man, it would burn your leg like crazy. That was not the way to use it. But you'll understand that this was the very kind of an instrument that was used. It was called a censure. And they would put inside the censure some hot coals. They would also load the thing with incense and then put it on the altar of incense. And beautiful aromas would go up. Which gives us another insight of how God enters in to our world. And how God will picture himself enjoying beautiful smells and good food and that kind of a thing. It shows you how we don't have some ethereal spirit who's like some kind of a force but he's really a person like us that enjoys the beauty of an incredible aroma and that's what this incense represents it says he was given much incense so the angel loads the censure with all kinds of this aromatic substance it's going to make an incredible smell and he does that with the prayers of the saints on the golden altar before the throne The smoke of the incense together with the prayers of the saints went up before God from the angel's hand Then the angel took the censure, filled it with fire from the altar, and he hurled it on the earth, and there came peals of thunder, rumbling, flashings of lightning, and an earthquake. Now, when you read that, if you're like most believers, you go, goodness, what in the world is it ever talking about? Talking about something very important. Remember, John is seeing these very graphic images. It's like, remember I told you, it's like holy political cartooning in the beginning. So the picture we have here of an angel loading the censure with increased aromatic substance is going to make an incredible smell. It tells us in the book of Revelation that this accompanies the prayers of the saints. Why is there silence in the heaven? Why did the king of the universe say to the angels, you need to stop praising me, stop worshiping me, because we have this incredible graphic picture. The saints are praying. And when the saints pray, God listens. Do you understand the power of your prayers as the children of God? Do you understand, like, the picture here is we have saints in the tribulation period. And what these saints have experienced, remember when we had the first seal opened and Antichrist rode forth? Remember the result of Antichrist riding forth is that peace was taken from the earth and so swords begin to flash and military totalitarianism begins to conquer the world. The result of that is horrible famines and destruction and there's not enough food. 
And then we saw, you know, the great plagues, the plague of death. Thousands of people are dying. In the sixth seal, we saw the martyrs for the cause of Christ underneath the altar of heaven. And they're pictured as saying, God, how long are you going to let this go on? How do you think a church prays when they're facing a Nazi-like force against them, a totalitarian force like communism? How do you think believers prayed when they were losing their kids, losing their parents, losing their loved ones in a church? How do you pray then? Well, we pray, Lord, I want you to forgive them. I want them to come to know Christ. I want them to be forgiven, just like Jesus prayed in the cross. But I also want you to know that we also pray, Lord, people that are committed against you, people that have chosen to become totally sinful, people that have chosen it, and we don't even know in our own humanity who those people are that have made those final choices. But I want you to know that during the tribulation period, people will pray against the totalitarian secular, anti-God forces. And they're saying, Lord, why don't you do something? God, why don't you affect yourself? Why don't you make yourself known? We want you to vindicate the cause of heaven. And that's a legitimate way to pray. And our society has lost all sense of ethic, so we don't even understand that kind of a prayer. In fact, we think that kind of a prayer is evil. And it's not evil. In other words, evil is evil. When murderous people do horrible, horrible things against people. For example, when missionaries are taken down in Colombia and then they're kept from their families for years and then they're martyred. That's a horrible thing. That's an evil thing to do. And we need to pray that those that are evil will have their life broken and that they'll come to Jesus. But if they don't come to Jesus, I want you to know that they're going to face judgment. And our society doesn't want to ever say that. That's the biggest problem. We don't ever want to say that this person's really evil and because they're evil, they need to pay for what they did. It's so much a part of our culture that, man, you can do whatever you want. There's never any consequences. We can't even understand this chapter. But I want you to know that there comes a time when God in heaven hears the prayers of his people for justice. And for his cause to be vindicated. And for him to break forth. And what the book of Revelation for the rest of this book is going to be about when you pray to the king of kings. And you talk to him. And you line up with his will. Things really happen. Do you believe that? I don't think you do. Say, Dave, why not? What about your priorities of prayer? What about my priorities of prayer? How much have you really prayed this week? And I don't want to put guilt on you. I want to face you with the reality. The last thing in the world I want you to do is get all chumped up because I made you feel guilty. I just want you to live reality. One of the big burdens on my heart over the last several months, if it's about time for us to say, if I really believe this Jesus stuff, let's do it. Mayor and I have just seen some of our closest friends and people in different parts of the country that we've known for many years. We've seen their lives just totally destroyed because they didn't obey Jesus. They didn't listen to what Jesus said. It's kind of like saying, I don't believe in gravity. So you jump off the Empire State Building. And I mean, it's an incredibly fun ride down. Mary and I are seeing the bloody smash on the pavement below. And maybe I'm just getting old and cranky, but I think it's time for us to decide what do we really believe and let's do it. I told you about the Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir and Jim Cymbala's burden. In their church family, their major service is their Wednesday night prayer meeting. In our church, who cares? 
Now, I'm not saying legalistically that you have to pray then. And there's lots of other times you can pray. What I'm asking you is you need to start saying, man, what do I really believe? What am I really committed to? Life's really short. And some of you that are younger think that it isn't short. But, man, I want you to know, man, it goes by wham, 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 wham. And you make decisions about what you're going to do and who you're going to be and what's going to be important to you. And it's time for you to just start saying, man, I really believe Jesus. And I want to tell you, you want an exciting life? In fact, some of you say, well, I'm not sure I believe in Jesus. Well, my challenge to you is try him. Really is. If you wonder whether Jesus is really alive on planet Earth, you say, Dave, I'm not really sure God impacts the natural system. I'm just not sure of it. He's never done it for me. Well, then you come on out. Let's try it. Let's try him. Let's put him to the test in a holy way, in a biblical way. You know, he says he can change kids' lives. Let's start praying for kids. He says he can help little children. He says, little children, come to me and I'll never turn you away. Jesus says that. Then let's start really thinking through what is it going to take. We need to think in terms of what is it going to take for us to work together as a team to get really serious and start bringing Jesus into the lives of people. And that begins with prayer. That begins with prayer. I've shared with you what happened in the Brooklyn church. Jim and his precious wife met together. They were drug addicts and drunkards and prostitutes and transvestites in a broken down church in New New York. Jim and his wife just began to cry over it. And then they began to pray. They had a choir. The first choir they gathered together, nobody could sing. Jim's wife could play the piano. That was it. Nobody could play any musical instruments. So Jim's precious wife looked at the group and said, well, we definitely can't practice music today because none of us can do a blessed thing with music except me. So let's just pray for this choir rehearsal. So they prayed. They said, Lord, you tell us in your word that we should sing. You tell us in your word that we should praise you. None of us have any talent. The Lord reached out in the streets of New York and saved a total, total street person. Totally controlled by alcoholism. Totally controlled by immorality. The next few weeks, the Lord saved that person. Guess what? It happened to be, man, he had an instrument in his throat. He started saving, started saving rhythm bass players. Started saving electric guitar players. Started saving some keyboard players. Started bringing some people that learned how to sing. Thousands upon thousands of New Yorkers. Guess what they come to hear? The Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir. You know where that happened? People like you, just like you, said, when I pray, heaven gets silent. Because God, my daddy in heaven, wants to hear what I have on my heart. We're living now in the great age of grace, the great age of opportunity. It's a day where Jesus is not just pouring out his vindictive judgment. He's pouring out his grace. How much more, if the saints are praying during the tribulation period, and God, all of heaven, becomes silent to hear what they have to say, then how much more should heaven become silent now during this incredible period where but God commended his love toward us in that when we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jim and Carol Cimbala have challenged the church to pray. The church has never had more professionals, never had more electronic sound systems, never had better media and never had less effect upon the reality of what happens Monday through Saturday in real life. We have programs, but do we have the power of the Holy Spirit? We have Harvard-inspired courses in leadership techniques, but do we have the power of the authentic, 
resurrected Christ causing spiritually dead people to become eternally alive and transformed? It is time to pray. Only when God's family around the world humbly depends upon his resurrection power engaged through prayer will we become the salt and the light this world desperately needs.